I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Simpson Diagnosis Podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the week's symptom. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. You know, it crosses my mind that we're going to have to change fingerprints to like DNA analysis. No one's going to know pretty soon <laughs> what a true. fingerprint is. I was thinking that someday when I'm like completely demented, I will just be repeating that intro over and over again. <laughs> Something to look forward to. So what are we talking about today, Scott? Our topic today is hypercalcemia, and you are the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me? I do. All so, right. Well, hit it. Picture this. Yes, okay. You're sitting in your office. It's the afternoon. You just had a cup of coffee, and you have a new patient on your schedule. You're excited because you have a little bit more time for the new patient than your usual patient. The patient is 60. She's not seen a doctor in 10 years, and she considers herself quite healthy and quite knowledgeable about medicine. And she admits that she does not particularly like doctors. She finds them self-important. She comes in now because she knows she's due for her second colonoscopy. She had one at 50, which was normal. She's having worsening constipation. She now says she has to drink prune juice daily, and that enables her to go to the bathroom at most every other day. She also would like to get the Shingrix vaccine, which she knows has been approved since the last time she saw a doctor. You see her, everything seems fine. You convince her that some blood work would be helpful. You send a CMP, a TSH, lipids, and an A1C. Although your colleague, Dr. Seafew, sitting next to you is like, why are you sending all these blood tests? They all look great, except the calcium is 11. Her albumin is normal thoughts. <laughs> well, actually, in a real visit, I'd have a lot of thoughts. So before I get to the calcium, there's a lot of interesting dialogue that you just had. So first, she hasn't seen a doctor in 10 years. I will say that you have to be very careful with patients who really haven't seen a doctor in 10 years, because oftentimes something's really wrong with them. They haven't seen a doctor for 10 years because they don't like going to doctors and something, even if they don't admit it, has pushed them to feel badly enough that they've come in. And so I've often called that Stern's rule. If someone's come in and they haven't seen anybody in 10 or 20 years, something's wrong. The other thing I'd, I'd mention is, boy, I'd have to check my uh, emotional karma at the door with this patient because it sounds like she's going to at least trigger me a little bit. She doesn't like doctors. She seems to think that she knows what's going on. And so sometimes you have to be aware of what you're thinking and just take care of the patient. But all right, so let's get to her calcium. <laughs> so she's 11. And you have a patient who's basically apparently well-looking. You haven't mentioned that she looks sickly or is losing weight, who's hypercalcemic. In you know, retrospect, her constipation's probably a symptom of this. It'd be nice to know how long it's gone on so that you have a sense of maybe how long she's been hypercalcemic, which can be helpful. As would her any prior labs, but she hasn't had any because she hasn't seen anyone in 10 years. A family history can also be helpful. Other clues to chronicity, which can be helpful, are prior kidney stones or if she's ever been diagnosed with osteoporosis. 
I think I definitely want to know whether she's taking calcium and vitamin D. She does say she's cognizant of her health, so it's quite possible she's taking too much calcium and vitamin D, and it's quite simple, uh, and that she just needs to stop those. But if all of that's negative, my first step would be to get a PTH level on her, uh, because clearly primary hyperparathyroidism is going to be the most common of the various disorders that we're going to talk about. Um, her thyroid function tests are normal, arguing against hyperthyroidism, and it doesn't sound like she's on thiazide because she hasn't seen anyone in 10 years, which is another common cause. If all of that is negative, the PTH is normal, then we'd have to think about some, a cancer. Um, if she was a smoker, maybe a perineoplastic syndrome from a cancer or multiple myeloma uh, could do this. But those, well, fortunately, will be less likely, and I'm not going to order those in the initial steps. So what do you got for me? That sounds great. I, I really like the idea that she seems to be very aware of her health. And so thinking about, you know, maybe she's using calcium and vitamin D, I think is a great thought, especially in the COVID era where half the world decided that maybe taking vitamin D was going to prevent COVID. And you also alluded to the symptoms of hypercalcemia, which is classically described by, I don't know, is this a mnemonic, I guess? Um, right. Bones abdominal groans, thrones, and psychiatric overtones, bones talking about um, uh, usually PTH-related bone disease, um, abdominal groans, the kind of constipation and achy that people can get, thrones, which I had forgotten until I looked it up for this, which is from sitting on the toilet, either because of constipation or polyuria, and then psychiatric overtones, anxiety, depression that go along with hypercalcemia. Um, well, yeah, I'll give you what you want. So you asked for a PTH, is that correct? I did. <laughs> and her PTH comes back at 135 with normal, I think, going up to 70, 75. So presumably if her cranning is normal, then yeah. this is not secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism. So it pretty much confirms the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. And the real decision is going to be, does she need treatment or not, which we can get to um, later. But Sounds I good. think the diagnosis is fortunately relatively clear. So you're feeling pretty good about yourself. I'm <laughs> feeling quite good about myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to move into on with my um, five points here. So point one, uh, for me, hypercalcemia is one of those diagnoses that I think about the differential with a framework and then the clinical evaluation of the patient with a whole different algorithm. So I'm going to start with the differential. And the differential, I think very much like you expressed, I think of totally in terms of PTH-related causes of hypercalcemia, hypercalcemia of malignancy, vitamin D-related, and other causes. So parathyroid-related is overwhelmingly primary hyperparathyroidism, but you mentioned some of the other things, secondary tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Hypercalcemia of malignancy, actually the most common cause of, of hypercalcemia in our hospitalized patients. And that can also be a couple of different things. There can be PTHRP-related, there can be hypercalcemia from osteolytic mets, or there can actually be production of vitamin D by tumors. Um, that's mostly seen with uh, lymphoma. There's vitamin D-related causes in today's world. That's mostly just people taking too much vitamin D, but granulomatous disease can do that. And then there are some other relatively common cause of hypercalcemia that I just keep in the back of my mind, milk alkali syndrome, hyperthyroidism, stuff like that. Great. My second key point is 
to organize your differential of a patient around the PTH. Um, so most patients you see with hypercalcemia will not have symptoms. You'll just get a calcium. It'll be elevated. The PTH will be elevated. The creatinine will be normal. And your diagnosis will be primary hyperparathyroidism. And you kind of can't say that enough because you don't want to get too into the weeds in your differential diagnosis because most of the time this is easy. Third key point, once you diagnose primary hyperparathyroidism, and you alluded to this, Scott, you have to remind yourself that not every patient needs surgical treatment. I always love this talking to medical students because medical students coming off of internal medicine generally think that you just monitor primary hyperparathyroidism. Medical students coming off the surgical service thinks that you just operate on primary hyperparathyroidism. Right. It's not minor surgery. It's not minor surgery. And really, I think it's one of those surgeries that you have to be in good hands, right, to have it done. Absolutely, um, right, totally. Um, so the indications for surgery are symptoms, which are sometimes, given how nonspecific um, symptoms of hypercalcemia are, are sometimes a tough call. Osteoporosis, which can be a tough call in older people because is it because of their hyperparathyroidism or is it because, you know, they're a 75-year-old woman? Creatinine clearance or GFR less than 60, right? And so, with I should say, without another cause. So that's probably nephrocalcinosis, right? Uh, CKD related to hypercalcemia. Interesting one, age less than 50. It turns out that if you've got hypercalcemia at a young age, that's A, much more likely to progress to hypercalcemia that requires treatment. It also costs so much to monitor those people over the cost of their life that's actually cost efficient to just um, surgically treat their primary hyperparathyroidism. And then a calcium over 11.2, because if your calcium's that high, those people are also more likely to progress to. The age cancer. makes sense. I mean, if you think about the long-term impact of even mild hyperparathyroidism over decades, you have to imagine that's going to mess with your bones, even if you're not osteoporotic then. Right. Right. I'd be worried about that. I'd be worried about that from a bone perspective. I think I'd be worried about that from a vascular perspective as well, right? right. And kidneys as well. Sure. I mean, right. Totally. Fourth key point, if your PTH is low, the diagnosis is likely cancer. I think anybody who's gone to medical school has seen that old graph of like low and high PTH and what the... Um, uh, what the causes are. But mostly that's in patients who've already been diagnosed with cancer. It's relatively uncommon for someone to present with hypercalcemia and that lead to the diagnosis of their cancer. Maybe myeloma is the only um, thing that stands out from that. I don't know what you'd think. Um, I'm not sure. I was yeah. wondering if the level of the calcium impacted your thinking about that. Is yeah. there value in saying, boy, if it's 14, I'm really worried about cancer? Sure. Does the data bear that out? The data does bear that out. And if you look at people who are hospitalized for hypercalcemia, okay, who obviously, you know, by the fact that they're hospitalized in 2021, you know, those are people who must have really high calcium. Right. Those people overwhelmingly have malignancies. Oh. So I think you're onto something there. Okay. But other possibilities for this low PTH hypercalcemia are milk alkali syndrome. Okay, that's actually the second leading cause of hospitalized patients for hypercalcemia. Hypervitaminosis D, hyperthyroidism, granulomatous disease, and thiazide use. All right. And so do you have one more for us? I have a final key point. Go ahead. And that's, we spend a whole lot of time thinking about and managing calcium and phosphate levels in people with CKD. It helps me to remember the story of what happens to calcium metabolism and the kidneys fail. So the first step is that as kidney function worsens, the kidneys produce less vitamin D and excrete less phosphate. 
And the body's response to this is perfect, okay? The body makes more PTH. This leads to more excretion, um, which is actually decreased resorption of phosphate. And it also increases production of vitamin D. Thus, more calcium is absorbed and more calcium is released by, from the bone, okay? So initially, things are working great. The problem is, is that as the CKD worsens, the PTH no longer helps. The kidneys sort of say, yeah, I know there's PTH around, but I can't make any more vitamin D, and I can't excrete more phosphate. And so all that happens is the PTH pulls um, calcium out of the bones, which weakens the bones, phosphate levels rise, and you end up with someone with low calcium, high PTH, renal osteodystrophy, and hyperphosphatemia, and it's just a bad place to be. Okay, so we don't want to get that. That makes sense. All right. So let's go back to our case. But just to make that simple, yeah, the yeah. reality is we only have to worry about that if someone's creatinine is significantly elevated. If their PTH is elevated and their creatinine is normal, we're done with that, correct? You got it. You got it. So when you're thinking about primary hyperparathyroidism, generally, you shouldn't be sending a PTH unless you already have you know, a creatinine or some measure of kidney function. Great. All right. So let's go back to our case. You said her PTH was over 100, yep. despite the hypercalcemia. So she's has a high calcium and a high PTH, pretty much confirming hyperparathyroidism. So uh, what happened to her? So um, I'll throw that back at you. So, you know, we talked about reasons to um, treat her and treat her as send her to surgery. So she's convinced that she's having no symptoms of this. Uh, she thinks her constipation is chronic and unchanged. You urge her to have a bone density study. You know, generally we start that at 65, but here's a woman and she refuses because she's not supposed to have that until she's 65. Her renal function is fine. She's 60, so she's over 50, and her calcium's not quite 11.2. So what do you tell her? Well, that's a good question. Um, I probably wouldn't push her very hard, frankly. I'd probably say we should keep an eye on it. I would try to explain to her the rationale for doing a bone density because she is, you know, leaching calcium from her bones at a much higher rate and hope I could persuade her with time to do that because it might affect uh, my therapy. But other than that, I don't think that um, would I put her on anything for her bones now with the absence of a bone mineral density? I, I probably would not, although maybe some people would. So I'm Dr. Sifu, I need your expertise in this. What would you do in the absence of deciding you're going to do surgical therapy? I think what you said is perfect. Um, and I think it shows that you are, you know, an experienced um, internist and recognize it like, you know, you don't have to finish that on today's visit. I mean, I think if you can get her to come back in six months or a year to continue this conversation, rechecking her calcium, you know, making the argument about the bone density study, boy, that would be terrific. Uh, you threw me for a second talking about um, a treatment of this. And, and it's interesting. You know, certainly there are people who don't want to have surgery, whose only symptom is um, some osteopenia and osteoporosis, that you might treat that. And then we can treat primary hyperparathyroidism with Sinicalset, right? Certainly, I think at this point, with someone without symptoms and a calcium of 11, you wouldn't even think about doing that. But it's, it's an interesting thought. All right. Well, that was an interesting case. So we're going to go on now to our next section, which is fingerprints slash DNA analysis, <laughs> uh, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, what do you have for fingerprints? Nothing. Okay, I don't have anything either. <laughs> uh, this is often the case. 
All right. So how about common misconceptions? So I, I kind of mentioned this before. So maybe the misconception that milk alkali syndrome is a rare syndrome only of historical importance, and it's people who have peptic ulcer disease who are ingesting some crazy mix of milk and bicarbonate, right? I've actually printed out the JAM article about this from like 1917 that I occasionally hand out in the hospital. Just 1917? 1917, isn't that cool? Wow. So that's not true. Uh, milk alkali syndrome, second leading cause of hospitalization from hypercalcemia. These days, it's not related to sippy powders or whatever it was back then, but it's related to um, people using calcium carbonate, which is really a terrific source of both calcium and an alkali. Um, you'd like people to have some, you know, AKI, CKD, but even just hypovolemia, uh, which could get them some level of hypercalcemia and get them into the hospital. That's great. How about you? Misconception? I have one. So when we think about cancer causing hypercalcemia, uh, we often wonder if we often look to the alkaline phosphatase to see if it's elevated because the idea is that as the bone is invaded, the alkphos will go up. The one exception that to remember is multiple myeloma. It turns out that multiple myeloma releases something that's been called osteoclast activating factor that reabsorbs bone but does not elevate alkphos. So if you're ever worried about multiple myeloma, an alkphos will not usually be elevated. Mm. I had completely forgotten about that, but I have to say it is true that for me, hypercalcemia of malignancy, very often if I'm seeing a normal ALKFAS, um, sorry, if I see an elevated ALKFAS and I go to that next step of, okay, while I'm working this up, I'm going to send um, serum protein electrophoresis, urine protein electrophoresis, PSA, you know, it's generally not myeloma and in my practice, it's, it's often unfortunately prostate cancer. Right, sure. All right, so let's go on to pet peeves. These are our favorite, I think. What do you, what, what? These are, <laughs> I love these. several of these, I have to admit. Yeah, so mine is the diagnosis normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, okay? And I tweeted this once, and one of uh, an endocrine colleague who I very much respect just got all over me about this because he's like, it exists, what are you doing? And it was interesting. Where our disagreement was comes from this. So normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism is very rare. It's generally found when the PTH is checked in people with a normal calcium, but you're working up osteoporosis in someone who shouldn't really have osteoporosis, okay? You know, you got a 50-year-old woman, a 50-year-old man, and, you know, I don't know, maybe they fracture something, you find out they're osteoporotic, you start working it up, and you're like, where does this come from? So... You could conceivably have normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, but there are just a whole lot of other things which might be causing um, hyperparathyroidism in patients that's actually not normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism. So chronic kidney disease, for instance, right? And in that case, it's actually secondary hyperparathyroidism, but just not so severe that you have hypocalcemia. It could be decreased calcium intake, right? And the body is responding to the decreased calcium by secreting PTH. Um, it could be calcium malabsorption, which could be from a whole number of things, right? Vitamin D deficiency, past bariatric surgery, celiac disease, pancreatic exocrine indeficiency. Maybe this is someone who had a history of alcoholism and has had pancreatic in the past. Renal calcium loss, there's idiopathic hypercalciuria, there are people who are on long-term loop diuretics, or 
well, I don't even know how to fit this in there, but I wrote this down as a possibility. So bisphosphonates, right? Bisphosphonates inhibit bone resorption. But I have no idea how you'd get to a patient where you're concerned about normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism when they're on a bisphosphonate, unless they're taking the bisphosphonate without telling you about it. So let's not even talk about that. So I'm a little worried about getting into the weeds further on this yeah, particular yeah, 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 entity, yeah. but it does occur to me that if you really were going to say they had normal calcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, the argument would have to be that they're putting out too much PTH and the serum calcium is normal because they're hypercalcuric. Right. And most of these other entities, they're not hypercalcuric. You got so, it. Right. You got it. And, and usually what this is or what the theory is, is that these are people who you've sort of just caught really early in their primary hyperparathyroidism. And so... Um, you know, their parathyroids are secreting too much, right, either from hyperplasia or an adenoma, but it's just not high enough yet that it's made them hypercalcemic. But I think the message is, you know, work up the other things because, you know, it's important that you figure out if this person has chronic kidney disease. And if you ignore that, you've ignored the most important part of it all. No, well, that's for sure. All right. Well, I have a pet peeve and it actually pertains a little bit more to hypocalcemia than hypercalcemia. But you do, again, we're in the weeds, but it's relevant. So uh, you do have to correct the serum calcium for the albumin. So as everyone remembers, calcium binds to albumin. And what the body's trying to regulate is the ionized calcium. So if, for instance, for some reason your albumin was quite high, the body would allow the serum calcium to be high so that the ionized calcium was normal. And you might be mistaken into thinking someone's hypercalcemic. I have to say it's pretty unusual. But the opposite is worth emphasizing that happens all the time in hospitalized patients, which is their serum calcium is low, 7.5 to 8, or even 7, and it turns out it's because their albumin is low. So for every gram your albumin goes down, as a rule, your calcium is going to go down by 0.8. So if your albumin was down by one point, you could add 0.8 to your measured calcium and estimate what your truly normal calcium would be in. I have to say, that's pretty common in the hospital. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think these days, basically nobody with normal albumin gets admitted to the hospital, right? Because you have to be so sick that almost everybody's hypoalbuminuric for some reason. Hyperalbuminemic, sorry. Yeah, true. All right. So uh, let's close up with some pearls. What do you have for me? Okay. So my clinical pearl is treatment. So these are usually patients who come into the hospital with hypercalcemia, right? They have an underlying disease, prostate cancer, breast cancer, multiple myeloma, maybe milk alkali syndrome. Um, and they come in with a calcium of, let's say, 14 or 15, feeling awful. So what do you do? First, you hydrate them because these people are pretty much always hypovolemic. So you're going to start normal saline. Once you have them euvolemic, you're going to add on a loop diuretic. That causes calciumuresis. And then you're going to do things which will act over the next 24 to 48 hours. And that's generally starting a bisphosphonate, you know, stabilize the bones, prevent calcium egress from the bones, maybe use calcitonin, and then you'll treat the underlying cause. Maybe it's treating the tumor. Maybe if it's from sarcoid, you'll start steroids. Maybe if it's from hypervitaminosis D, from vitamin D intoxication, you will um, take them off their vitamin D. And then slowly, hopefully, their calcium will get better and they'll feel better. 
Well, my pearl is to think about thiazide diuretics as a cause of hypercalcemia, even if they've been on it for quite a while, because patients can develop, interestingly enough, hypercalcemia after they've been on a thiazide for a while. So it should be high on your differential. I'm so happy you brought that up because when I was working on the hypercalcemia chapter for the latest, the fourth edition of symptom diagnosis, I found this study, which is like, you know, when you have a question and then you find a study which sort of perfectly answers that question? Well, this was a study out of uh, Mayo Clinic published in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And what they did is they looked back on all the patients that they had in their system who had been diagnosed with hypercalcemia related to thiazide diuretics. And what they found is that the average presentation of thiazide-induced hypercalcemia was five years after starting thiazide diuretics. five years. Five years. So really, just as you said. Upon discontinuation, about a third of the patients actually returned to normal calcium levels. So you stop the thiazide, they get better. And of the remaining two-thirds of patients, those patients who you stopped the thiazide and they remained hypercalcemic, 80% of those people had primary hyperparathyroidism. So, and how long did you say it takes, or maybe you didn't say, how long does it take when you stop the thiazide for the calcium to go back to normal? Right. So for that first third, it's quick. It's, you know, couple of weeks. So I think that if you said, you know, stop your thiazide, come back in a month, let's recheck levels. Great. And if their calcium at that point's high, you check a PTH, their PTH is probably going to be high and then you've made your diagnosis. Perfect. So we hope you found this episode of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast, useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. It's amazing that we take a deeper dive than our podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. Need a wetsuit for that. The book is available in print on your handheld device and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. Thank you.